Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and starting in verse 5. The Apostle Paul says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know all of you, but I know something about each one of you. Every person in my hearing, I, th- I can reasonably expect, showed up this morning having failed your own ideals at some point this week. You wanted to love your children better than you did. You wanted to be kinder to your spouse or your friends at work or your friends outside of work um, than you actually were. You found your heart pinched and miserly rather than open and generous. You uh, Maybe you wanted to give yourself away to causes that you believe in, but instead you found yourself circling around your own stuff or maybe even nursing grudges or resentment or whatever it was. And what I further know about you, particularly if you are a Christian, is that you grieve that manner of life. That, that is... That way of being is not okay with you. You want something more. You want something better. You long to love those who are in your care. You long to give yourself away for the flourishing of others. And maybe you've even tried to work on those things in your life and tried to add those things to you. But no matter how many times you pick yourself up from the ground after having tripped, you just trip again. You're yelling again. You're miserly again, leaving relational wreckage in your wake again. Now, I would like to suggest that the reason that we're not becoming more loving and kinder and open and generous and forgiving isn't because we haven't worked hard on becoming more loving and more forgiving and more kind and more generous. Lord knows we have. What I would like to suggest is that the reason we lack these graces is because we lack the most fundamental grace that upholds them all, the soil out of which all those other graces grow, and that virtue is humility. Humility, if you want to go back to St. Augustine, and I do, he said that (laughs) humility is the mother of graces. If we're humble then we can expect to find ourselves being generous and kind and forgiving and gracious. It's kind of like learning Latin. I teach Latin uh, to high schoolers, and uh, one of the things they always ask me, because for most of them, their parents sign them up. The parents see the value of this, uh, not the students. Uh, And one of the things they ask me is, why do we have to learn a dead language? Have you ever heard this? Um, And... And I, give, I have better answers than this, is, but this is one of the answers that I give them. And it is, if you learn, I go to the pragmatic route, if you learn Latin, Latin 
is essentially the base of all the Romance languages. So if you learned Latin, then you're already halfway there in French and Spanish and Italian and Romanian and... What am I missing? Well, in English, yeah, Portuguese, that's what I was looking at. English is kind of a weird hybrid of Latin, German. We, we bring them all in. Um, but it's not that, um, you, you could say that Latin is the mother of all those languages. And it's not that knowing Latin equals knowing Spanish, but to know Latin means that you know the movements of Spanish. You, you know what I mean? So, in the same way, to be humble is not the same thing as loving or forgiving or whatever, but to be humble is to know the movements of love. To be humble is to know the movements of faith. To be humble is to know the movements of patience and kindness and generosity. This is what we mean when we speak of humility being the mother of the graces. But, as you probably know, our world that we all live in, that we inhabit, is no friend to humility. Culturally speaking, what we value is the one who rises up, fulfills their selves, is true to the, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Not, not the one who bows down and empties himself or herself. But I hope that what we're going to see today is that the gospel of self-fulfillment is just a, a meager and pale shell of what true fulfillment looks like as we step not higher, but lower. Now, if humility is this vital, then how do we get it? Well, that's the question I'm gonna to try to answer in the next little bit. So, uh, what I'd like to do is talk about how, first, how not to get humility. Second, how to get humility. And then third, very end, very small, I'm gonna to try to apply it quickly. So, first, how not, to get humility. Now, I remember sitting in a sermon one time where the speaker was attempting, he was speaking on the theme of humility, and what he wanted to do was to humble us as the congregation. And his methodology was, he had this um, computer program, and it was projected on the screen. And what he did was somehow, you know, had our location on the earth there on the screen. And then he would zoom right out. And then we would see our location on the earth as the whole. And then he would zoom out like light years away. And then it was like, we're staring at us past the moon and then zoom out even further. And then we could see ourselves, not anymore, but from Saturn and then out from the galaxy. And then out, I mean, just out, 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 light years away, um, astonishing distances. And what he was trying to do was to get us to say, you know, we're very small. God is very big. And the way he did that was to go to Isaiah, uh, which says um, somewhere uh, that God measures the universe in the span of his hand. So consider that. All these light years, I mean, the light years is how fast the light travels in a whole year. Consider that. All these hundreds of millions of light years away we are now, and God measures it all in the span of his hand. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, it was a fine illustration as far as it goes. But the, the one thing it did not do for sure in me is produce humility. You see, what I, like I said, I think what he's trying to do is say, oh, we're very small, God is very big. 
and therefore, how great is the living God? And, and I think that's not too uncommon to think that the way to humble God's people is to speak of how great God is and how small we are, his greatness and his magnitude. But that is not the way to get humility. I was, I was amazed, maybe a little awed, um, but I was not humbled. Here's why. Um, I recently came across something interesting in the Gospels. Um, if you've ever spent any time there, you'll recall that there are several encounters between Jesus and the demonic host. Every once in a while, he encounters a demon. And I've, I've just chosen two little sayings out of all of them as a representation. But listen to what they say. Listen. And behold, this is from Matthew 8. Behold, they cried out, this is the demons, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And then from Mark chapter 1, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, there's so many things to say there, but I just want to focus on one thing. The demons, notice, the demons recognize Christ's greatness. They recognize Christ's power. And yet, as we're told in Revelation and various other places in the scriptures, they hate him. They want to destroy him. If considering and apprehending the greatness of God was the one way to get humility, then you would think demons would be the humblest of all creatures. And yet, they hate him. You could say that the demons are proud. So that tells me that apprehending the greatness of God is not the way that we get humility. If it were, they would be the humblest beings in existence because they actually, in reality, seem to know more about Christ's greatness than we do. So what's the answer? How then do we enter into humility? Well, um, I came across an astonishing answer. <laughs> um, I was reading the sermons of Jonathan Edwards and what he says in one of these uh, sermons, and it's a little book called Charity and Its Fruits. Um, in it, he says that we are not humbled. Now listen to this, okay. Just, y'all can leave after this, but I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna keep talking, but you, this is it. He says, we, we are not humbled by a sense of God's greatness. We are humbled by apprehending his loveliness. Okay, I'm going to keep talking. Now, listen, um, you may be awed by beholding God as the powerful one, but you can only be humbled by beholding God as the beautiful one. So um, that's how not to get humility, by apprehending his greatness. Now let's look at the beauty of the Lord. Secondly, the, how do we get humility? So um, we already read Philippians chapter two. I won't read that again, but what I'd, what I'd like to do is to try to return to that, look at it piece by piece and see, can we apprehend just a bit of that beauty? Because when you're reading the scriptures, you must be cognizant, all of us must be, not only of what the text says, but what did the author intend that text to do inside of its audience? What, what I think the apostle Paul is doing here is he's attempting to dazzle the Philippians and by um, consequence us 
into seeing the beauty, the loveliness of the humility of Christ, and therefore to induce us to humility as well. So let's walk through that text bit by bit. It starts with this. Though he, Christ, was in the form of God. Though he was in the form of God. The first thing we see is that our Lord Jesus was in the form of God. Now, there's this little Greek word behind that, morphe. And it doesn't mean like the outward form of something. If Paul wanted to say that, he would have used the word schema. Like, like we, we get our word schematic from that. Like a, a wiring diagram. The people who are working on the building that we're building. Y'all know a lot about schematics right now. Um, the, the outward form of something. But that's not, the Paul, that's not the word Paul uses here. No. Morphe means the inner form of something. We might say in English, like the essence of it. So, um, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is, in essence, God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is this man, Jesus Christ, is one in essence with him. This is the God who by a word of power created all things and by his sustaining power holds all things together. This is the God who appeared to the people at Sinai in a flame of fire and peals of thunder who spoke out of all that and they hit the ground and said, don't ever talk to us again. That was terrifying. This is the God who we're speaking of. This is the God whom Isaiah saw and, and in the midst of that said, I am undone. Woe is me. We begin with Jesus Christ then as the essence of God. You could not get any higher than that. This is who we're beginning with. Jesus Christ as the essence of God. But the next part of the verse, we begin to move downward. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now again, this word grasped gives us some trouble in the English because when we think of the word grasp, we, we think of something that's slightly outside of our reach and we're, we're trying to get at it. But that's not what this means. What this means is to hold on to something, that kind of grasp. Jesus Christ, who was in essence the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not did not consider it right to hold on, to grasp that power, that glory. And so, we see here what was going on in the mind of Christ. It says he did not consider this something to behold. We see decisions that he is making. He did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. And if that was his conviction, now we see how he carried it out. It says but he emptied himself. Christ emptied himself. If you want to know what humility means, well, now we've got to it. It means to empty oneself. And what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Well, Paul gives us two explanatory phrases in the next section. By taking the form of a servant, number one, and number two, by being born in the likeness of men. Born in the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, those two steps downwards, those are giant steps. And so what I like to do is to fill in with other scriptures those steps down because there are many. Um, 
so since being in the born, since being born in the likeness of men is grammatically prior to the servant piece of it, uh, let's meditate on that one first. So let's consider <clears throat> the downward movement of Jesus first. The Son of God became a man. Now, think about this. It would have been infinite condescension for him simply to become an angel. How much further down must he have gone to become from the, the, the living God to become a man? He stooped further and was made in the image of man. Second, he was born of a woman. Now, this woman, virtuous though she was, was a descendant of Adam and Eve, and therefore, housed within her was the taint of original sin. God, I mean, think about this. God could have made Christ out of the dust like he did Adam. At least dust is morally neutral material, but he had Christ born of this woman, and he stepped even further down. Third, not only that, but he was born in a low condition. I mean, compared to God, we're all low, but I mean, Compared to us, he was even lower. He was born in a very low condition. I mean, think about the circumstances of his birth. Um, it would have been fitting at least for him to be born of a princess in a palace filled with ivory and gold. But he was born to a poor woman who was betrothed not to a mighty ruler, but to a carpenter. When it came time to give birth, he was born in a stable amongst the animals he was not clothed in costly or embroidered um, items. He, he was wrapped in tattered swaddling cloths. They laid him, they didn't even lay him in the bed of the stable slave. They, they laid him in the, the trough where the animals ate. And this scene of our birth, of, of his birth, is lower than almost any of us who are among the race of Adam can imagine. Like, very low. Fourth, after having been born, Christ then endured the miseries of this life. Our Lord endured poverty. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When it came time to pay his tribute tax, he didn't even have it. He had to go get Peter to catch a fish and get the coin out of the fish's mouth, which I still maintain is the best way to get your tax money. Just go fishing. Um, <laughs> it's April 15th, honey. It's uh, got to go. All right. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, when he died, he had no grave of his own. When, when he wanted to eat his last supper, it was in a borrowed room. When he prayed, it was in another man's garden. When he preached, it was in another man's ship. When he entered Jerusalem, it was on a borrowed donkey. This man suffered poverty. But not only did he endure poverty, he endured sorrow. If you'll recall, Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not only that, Jesus wept beside the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, and we read in other places that he was deeply grieved at the hardness of heart that the Pharisees exhibited. Not only sorrow, he was also maligned. He was despised and rejected of men. The religious leaders called him a devil. His family said he's out of his mind. He's nuts. Pharisees said he was a drunkard and the friend of the most despised. Not only was he maligned, but he was also subject to Satan's most powerful temptations. Satan tempted Jesus to suicide, to false worship, 
to testing the Lord his God, to power and glory, to worshiping the devil himself. But not only temptation. When Christ became a man, he endured just the normal difficulties of human life. We knew that he grew, he grew weary. We know that he was hungry. We know that he was thirsty. And all of this taken together is just the slightest sense of what it means that Christ humiliated himself to be born a man. But there's more, more steps to descend. Jesus Christ was not merely born in the likeness of man, but once he was born, the text says, he took the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. Now, the most natural translation of this word is slave. He took the form of a slave. And in Paul's day, the Roman Empire was chock full of slaves. Usually, they were prisoners of war from other Mediterranean countries. Um, and to be a slave meant a lot of things. But listen, for our purposes, what we're going to focus on is that to be a slave meant to have no will of your own. Jesus Christ, in becoming a man, did not even grasp at something that we considered to be one of our greatest treasures, namely the, the will to do what we see fit to do, the freedom to act as we deem fit. Rather, he became a slave and submitted the entirety of his will to his Father in heaven. And you know you know maybe the, the most fundamental illustration of this. One night, near the end of his life, as he approaches his impending death, Jesus and his disciples are sharing a meal in Jerusalem. And in the frantic preparation, it appears that the disciples had forgotten to arrange for a foot washer. Now, it's probably not any surprise to you for me to tell you um, that foot washing in that day and age was the basis of jobs in first century Palestine. Now, what you may not know is if you go and you read the Jewish Midrash, which is like the commentary uh, on scripture, you go read the Jewish Midrash on slavery, you'll find that foot washing was so low that Jews taught that a slave could not be forced to do it against their will, but had to offer it freely. A slave could be forced to do anything but not that. Now, as the disciples lower themselves to recline at table with their Lord, nobody gets up to wash the feet. So I suppose the feet will go without washing tonight. No one could possibly stoop that low. And then they see their Lord rise from his place, strip his clothes off, wrap himself in a towel, which was the garment of a slave. And one by one, Jesus took the feet of those men who should have been stooping before him and washing his feet. And he washed them. He took the form of a slave. And you know what happened when Jesus tried to take Peter's feet. Peter, the one who had boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, who had gone up to the mountain and seen Jesus in his glory, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Peter could not bear to have such a man wash his feet like a slave. 
We must continue. Let's keep going down. As if all of the above that I've just said was not sufficiently low, we find that in verse 8 of Philippians 2, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's begin in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the garden, Jesus humbled himself to drink from the foaming cup of God's wrath. Gethsemane as a word means olive press, the garden of the olive press. And here, in this garden, the weight of the Father's wrath against sin began to so powerfully press upon Jesus that, that he had blood running in his sweat. He was being pressed as an olive. Um, and why was the load so heavy? It was so heavy because it contained the weight of condemnation for every sin ever committed in word and thought and deed for his people. It was a load that were it laid upon the entirety of the heavenly host would have sunk them to hell in a moment. But Christ, our Lord, straightened his legs under it and bore that load. And then Jesus bore it to the cross. Remember in some of those passages that I quoted earlier about the demons, recognizing the greatness of Jesus, what I didn't emphasize was how they trembled at the thought of the wrath of God coming upon them. You, ha you haven't come here to torture us before the time, have you? If the devils tremble at the wrath of God, how dreadful must it have been to have all of God's wrath against sin accumulated and concentrated all at once upon the body of our Lord. But there's further down to go. Paul includes that little phrase here that would have meant so much to the Philippians but means almost nothing to us. He says, even death on a cross. Now, Christ would have suffered enough of an indignity, listen, he would have suffered enough of an indignity to his glorious being just to submit to death, period, any death. Die in your sleep, stop breathing. He would have, that would have been an indignity to his glorious being unimaginable. But he died in the most ignoble way possible. I mean, think about this. It was the most painful way to die. We shouldn't be surprised since Isaiah also tells us it pleased the Lord to, breeze, to, to bruise him. In preparation for his death, he was scourged. The blessed back of our Savior was torn apart into strips of flesh by rods and whips. He was crowned with thorns, and the soldiers beat the crown until it drove into his flesh. They punched him. They pulled out his beard they crucified him. This involves, of course, driving nails through some of the most sensitive parts of the body and then leaving the body to hang under the weight of its own gravity. And we're told that our Lord suffered in that manner for six hours. Not only was it the most painful way to die, it was the most shameful way to die. They stripped him naked before nailing him to the cross. And it was well known that Ordinary citizens, ordinary Roman citizens were not crucified. This was the form of execution that was reserved for the basest of criminals. So 
by being crucified on a cross publicly, what that said about him was that he was on display as the very scum of their society. And then they further shamed him by mocking him on the cross. Come down if you really are the son of God. Hail, king of the Jews. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. It was painful. It was shameful. But it was also the most spiritually excruciating way to die. You see, at about noon that day, darkness covered the land, it says. And Christ cried out in a voice, weighed down with the most powerful dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the cursed one hanging upon a tree, he was at last abandoned by his father. And in this way, listen, in this way, Jesus descended lower than any human being has ever gone in the history of the world. Um, last May, I took a trip to London with some of my students. And one of the things that our guide took us to see was some of the sites of different Christian martyrs. There was Hugh Latimer in Oxford and he was burned at the stake there. And there was Thomas Cranmer who, <clears throat> trying to avoid the persecution and the martyrdom, went ahead and signed a recantation document. He renounced his faith. But then his conscience struck him and his body began involuntarily being racked with huge sobs. And so he publicly came out at that point and recanted his recantation. And for that, he was condemned and his body was burned at the stake. And as the fire began to grow hot around his feet, with what limited mobility he had, he took his right hand, the hand that signed that recantation to begin with, and he put it into the flames until it was blackened and dead. Now, both of these were horrifying deaths. Unimaginable to most of us. But each of them and every martyr who has ever shared their fate endured it with the strengthening presence and grace of their father. Now listen, okay. Thomas Boston, listen to him on this account. He's an old Puritan. Listen to what he says. Compare the martyrs quietly bearing the most fearful deaths they were supported by divine consolations flowing into their souls without one drop of God's wrath in the cup given them to drink. But from Jesus, all divine comforts were withheld. See that desertion of God, of which he so bitterly cried out on the cross. When, was there, when there was an eclipse of comfort from his holy soul, as there was of the sun in his cheering beams from the earth, that he might bear that wrath in full measure. Oh, what an amazing step of humiliation was this. Who knows the power of the Lord's wrath? Jesus was set up as a mark against which all the arrows of the divine wrath were leveled. The quiver thereof was emptied upon him. No wonder then, he was in an agony. That blood trickled from every pore of his body. 
and that his holy human soul recoiled, as it were, from the terrible shock it underwent under this load of wrath and the curse of the law. And Jesus, and Jesus endured all of this without the comfort of his father. When the suffering had come to an end, Jesus lifts up his voice and he cries out, it is finished. And he breathed his last. Never has there ever been a man who emptied himself so completely. Never has there ever been a man who began higher and humbled himself lower than our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did Christ do this? Why did he do this? First, he did this to satisfy divine justice as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He did this so that we might be forgiven our sins. But, but why did he descend so low? He descended so low and so completely that the wrath of God against the sins like people like us could crave no more. It is satisfied. Period. It is finished. There's no longer any atonement left for sin. He left nothing on the floor. Secondly, why did Christ do this? Christ endured this, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. You know who the joy is? It's you. Christ longed to have the company of his family with him. He he loved his bride and he wanted her by his side and no depth was too low for him to go so that she might be with him. That's why he did this. And now, let me hasten to conclude here and apply. I said in the beginning that if we're gonna be humble, we must not simply apprehend the greatness of God. That, that's not the humbling method. If we're to be truly humble, we must behold his loveliness. And don't you feel that happening right now? Like I, I'm just trying to do what Paul did and show you what Christ did, who he was, how he loved. So that in seeing, in just even a parting of the curtain, a glimpse of his beauty, a glimpse of his loveliness apprehended in the heart. When you see him pouring himself out, you go, oh, I want to pour myself out like that too. Like that's how we become humble people. When I think of the greatness and the power of God, it doesn't induce me to empty myself. But when I see the measure of beauty like we have just considered, I, just, I can scarcely help but wanting to pour myself out. Now, how do we apply this? Number one, three ways. Number one, very briefly. Let us never despise doing what is lowly if the good of others and the glory of God may be advanced. 
Let us never despise doing what is lowly if the good of others and the glory of God may be advanced. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, now that I have done this, you do this to one another. His humbling is for the sake of our own humbling. Secondly, let Christ's humiliation speak to us of the great evil of sin. If this was the length to which Christ went to satisfy divine justice, then let the beauty of his humiliation lead us to despise the sins to which we cling so closely. And then thirdly, let the humility of our Lord give us the strength to cast off the gospel of self-fulfillment, which is the air we breathe. The beauty of Christ's message in his life was not, I must be true to myself, no matter the cost, I must rise. Contrary to this, the Lord's life had a clear message, I must empty myself, I must descend to the dust, and it was because of this humility, not in spite of it, that our Lord was exalted above every name that is named. Humility must always precede rising. And the rising may only occur at the resurrection. We are never promised it in this life, but we are promised it in the resurrection. So even if you are humbled to the dust in this world, nothing is wrong. It's right. Jesus taught us to live this way. And if we are humbled to the dust, he will raise us up in the resurrection. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you know how hard this is for us. We are dazzled by the beauty of our Lord's humility, but we scarcely can move an inch in that direction. So that tells me that you must help us. You must continue to bring these meditations of Christ's humility, his lowliness, before our eyes, press it upon our hearts, so that your people we all could begin to live more like him. I would imagine that our world would be dazzled by it in the same way that we are. So we love you and we offer ourselves to you and we thank you for the greatness of Christ's humiliation so that we may address you so freely, so easily. It cost you so much to leave this door open, but we enter it with joy and thank you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. We come now to the table of our Lord, the bread and the cup. And what this reminds us of is that one night when Jesus looked at the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to its bitter dregs, he did that in our place so that the cup we now take is not filled with wrath or condemnation, but the cup that we now take is filled with grace and kindness and goodness towards us. So come and be reminded of, your, of the mercy of God. This is a meal for those of us who name Christ as our Lord, for those of us who rejoice in his humiliation, who rejoice in further humiliating ourselves in, in um, imitation of our Lord. If that's not you, we invite you to, 
to believe. We invite you to, to, if you were moved by the beauty of Christ's humiliation, do you know what that means? It means he did it for you. And he is inviting you to his table. And so we invite you as well. Please come.